Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hi, this is Steve. When I was an undergrad studying theater and political science at Berkeley, I decided to enroll in a graduate course where they devoted an entire semester to analyzing a single play. Now, you wouldn't think it would be possible to spend 15 three-hour classes on one play, but when the play is William Shakespeare's Hamlet, you'd be surprised at how deep you can go. We looked at Hamlet from every conceivable angle, from the way the Groundlings saw it when it premiered in the early 1600s, to how it was rewritten with a happy ending in the 1750s, and how it was interpreted on film throughout the 20th century. We examined it from postmodern, feminist, neo-historical, and Marxist perspectives. We analyzed the verse, the characters, and the themes, and after all that, at the end of the semester, we realized that we had only just begun to plumb the depths of that amazing play. 
The last two months on Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather films has been the closest John and I have ever come to that level of analysis. And as we reach the end of our exploration of The Godfather Part Two, I once again feel that in many ways we've only just begun to plumb the depths of these amazing films. Even after all these hours of discussion, John and I continue to make discoveries, explore new perspectives, and ask new questions about the Corleone family. So, if you still haven't seen these incredible films, a visit to cinephiles.net is definitely in order. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to a discussion inspired by John's WandaVision reviews on the Geek Buddies. The question of Vision's consciousness and rights led us to a discussion of Star Trek The Next Generation's Commander Data and the episode The Measure of a Man. And this, in turn, led to a discussion of consciousness itself. So, that's Vision, Data, and the Consciousness Problem on Patreon, and, believe it or not, our concluding episode on The Godfather Part 2, this Friday, on The Cinephiles. I mean, you've won. You want to wipe everybody out? I don't feel I have to wipe everybody out, Tom. Just my enemies. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where I hope this will be the final installment of our epic exploration of Godfather 2. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host over on the Outlaw Nation channel, a VO artist, and excited to uh, <laughs> possibly glimpse uh, the finish line of godfather part two even though i've been enjoying every second of it and from what our fans and our listeners have told us they have been enjoying every second of this as well it's so it's so weird because you know we were doing this show where every week we we're doing a new movie yeah. and now it feels like we're doing the godfather show yeah like it's just all we've done for Today, months now tonight on the godfather show <laughs> right. um i mean i know obviously you do a star wars shows and there are entire podcast devoted mm. to a single topic so mm. you know i guess it's not that unusual um oh no i'm sure it isn't i'm sure there's someone who's got a podcast that goes minute by minute through the godfather series we've seen that before on other things so why not well, i do not want to listen to that podcast <laughs> i've got enough i'm good but right now we just had what i think is probably the most brutal scene in the films which yeah. is michael and Kay arguing which ends with him hitting her and her still determined to take the children and him saying that they never will. Absolutely brutal. And then we have this hard cut to Sicily. And it's funny on, on social media, a couple of people are asking like, what do you mean when you say a hard cut? Mm. And so here's what I mean is that in general, as an editor, your job is to make your cuts invisible. Like I don't want someone watching a movie thinking about, Oh, they cut. Oh, they cut to a close up. Oh, they cut to a wide shot. Oh, they, you know, they cut to a tracking shot. Because then they're not involved in the movie. And so those are all soft. They just happen invisibly. A hard cut is something where it has such an impact that you can't not notice that something changed. And it's a technique that Coppola uses over and over and over again, where you cut from something quiet and dark to something loud and bright. And like good examples are just both the wedding sequence at the beginning of Godfather 1 and the party sequence in Godfather 2. You're going from these dark rooms where these quiet conversations out into the light where there's all this music and it's loud. That is a hard cut. And 
it's a, a technique that helps us to show contrast. So going from this very emotional, heavy scene to bright daylight and music of Sicily, that is a hard cut. And I think it's emotionally makes this huge contrast. And you can contrast this cut with what happens when uh, they tell um, the Godfather in the first film that Michael is in Italy, right? That's a, that's a softer cut. That's a transition cut yeah. of fade. <clears throat> you can compare those two uh, transitions uh, so you can get an analysis of a hard cut versus, versus a, a, a softer cut, so to speak. That is a great, that's a great analogy because one where it's kind of smoothly moving into it through a dissolve. Yeah. And here it's like, bam. And so we're in Sicily and this is the triumph. This is Vito Corleone. Now this powerful person arriving back in the hometown that he fled on the train with his whole family. And now he is wearing, it's not quite a white shirt white suit like Finucci. It's it's like just off white, but clearly this is a transformed person. And he's even got the Vito Corleone mustache at this point, mm-hmm. which by the way, they were debating should, you know, cause Brando oh. has a mustache in the movie and they're going like, so should De Niro have a mustache? And finally they flipped a coin. <laughs> <laughs> That's how movie decisions are made sometimes. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Um, and they drive off to this villa and we have a huge meal. And this is all just, you know, like we just went from Michael and Kay where a family is falling apart. Mm. And now we're at a family is together and triumphant and happy as can be. And we even have uh, Sonny, the actor playing Sonny, is uh, Coppola's son. Yeah. Okay. And he had kissed. It, it's so funny thinking about like a man who doesn't spend time with his family cannot be a real man. Mm. And here we have. Carmine Coppola, dad, doing a bunch of the music. We have Talia Shire in the movie. We have Sofia Coppola as the baby in the first film. We have, uh, we have, I think it's Roman Coppola in this one. Like he is always surrounding himself with his family. Yeah, yeah. And we see Fredo. Oh, by the way, they had to they had to curl Roman's hair, and and it was hot, so the the hair would like lose its curl. And this little like four or five year old kid that had to, no, we got to curl your hair again. No, oh, little tough. <laughs> and then we go through this walk through what I think is like an olive oil factory, although it looks like a, a winery. And we're eating little things, and we're laughing, and we're toasting, and this is like, man, this family has arrived. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we drive up to this building that we see many times because it's the same place that Michael was hiding out in Godfather 1. It shows up also in Godfather 3 and this villa in Sicily. And when I was thinking about it, it's like, you know what? If you're going to go hide out in a country to escape mobsters who want to kill you, why would you go and live in the place where your dad killed the old Don? That mm. <laughs> seems like not a like a good place to hide out. Right, right. It seems like exactly where you they would know you would be. Um, but we go up. We we oh. have Vito gets out. We have Don Tomasino, who's paid by the way by the production manager mm. of the movie. Oh, and that's great. And Vito's now in a dark suit. He's got a coat over his arm. And they walk up. We see that there are guards there. There we hear the cicadas. It's very ominous. Um, and then Don Tomasino is introducing Vito Corleone to Don Chichi, the man who killed his father, his mother, and his brother. And he's old. 
Yeah. And, and you're like, how can this still be the Don? But that's the kind of respect they have for the older Dons that they go on until they pass or until they hand off the reins of power. And, you know, he's sitting and this time he's sitting in an opposite position than he was uh, when we saw him at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Vito was young, right? He's on the right side sitting there. But on in this movie, in this part of the movie, he's on the left side and he's higher yeah. up. And so the the difference between being lower, the confidence of being, I don't know, it's maybe thing me reading into it, uh, uh, Steve, but like the confidence he has to sit in the chair on the bottom floor there, not needing a guardrail for protection. He has the guys there versus sitting on the left uh, behind the guardrail higher up. You know, there's that sense of maybe the old man needing in his mind to be even more protected as he gets closer. He's more paranoid, what have you. Uh, and so just I've, I found that to be so interesting. First of all, let me just say that if you and I don't read into stuff, I don't know how we would get into 29 <laughs> hours of Godfather material. Fair. That's, fair. That's pretty much the show could be called Steve and John read into stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, so, but let me ask you, but, uh, just mm-hmm. in that line, why do you think they make the choice to make Don Chichi or Don Cheech so decrepit so like i mean the guy seems like he can barely move at this point yeah Yeah. so why do you think we make the choice to do that rather than have him to be more of a younger threat well i have to be uh honest because i don't i haven't read what coppola's thoughts were about aging up this actor to make him look this way i haven't either so i i can only speculate and the two things that's come to me is what year is this 1974 vietnam the questioning of the older generation to the younger generation Mm. the fact that they're the fat cats sending young men off to die in war uh, while they sit and reap the benefits uh, financially and personally uh, from their sacrifices in this country and in other countries. And so, you know, this is the time of, and Steve, you know this, the don't trust anyone over 30, the Timothy Leary thing and all of that. So I feel like, if I hope I'm crediting him correctly if, that he did say that, but whoever said that, it was that kind of approach to the world. So showing him as this, this decrepit man who maybe his anger, his evilness has rotted him from the inside inside out um i think is a is a great thing uh that they do because he looks just like again lord of the rings what's the name of the guy who's like john noble when john noble is like so evil oh the the guy in uh gondor yeah he's just sitting there and he's like so just so uh, i don't know just so lost in the evilness of his inaction uh, that it is like aged him. Oh, oh him no, ride. it's the guy that's the head of the Rohirrim of, of the horse. That's who you're talking about. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. No, no, I don't mean that. That's that's the uh, um, Miranda Otto's dad, right? That's the guy yeah. that dies in bed. No, I'm talking about John Noble, the guy uh, who was in. Uh, okay. Uh, whatever that sh- sci-fi show fringe the guy who was in mm. fringe he's like he's the one that makes pip or mary sing for him and yes the that's that's the, the 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 leader of gondor yeah he's just like yeah, so okay. like you know caught up in his evil <clears throat> what have you but you could use the you could use worm tongue messing with uh, that guy too either way it's the whiteness the removal of life do you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. and so having him look like that in that moment i think conveys a certain level of uh, disgust when you look at him so first of all, that was a great interpretation and the <laughs> Vietnam thing would never have occurred to me. So mm. talk about reading into stuff. I mean, that's a really interesting perspective. Uh, 
while you were speaking, I got to Google uh, Don't Trust Anyone Over 30. Yeah. It is actually Jack Weinberg, who oh. was an environmental activist. My apologies. Um, nah, I, I'm sure Jack is very upset with you. Um, <laughs> Timothy Leary, he doesn't he doesn't care anymore. Um, yeah. Sure. What I was thinking about is like this is a movie about two different time periods mm. is that we saw when Vito was going to become this decrepit person who is not in Godfather one at the end mm. is that there's sort of a, because this is a movie that takes place over these vast differences in time that yeah. to me, like it was sort of like, well, this is where we're all going to end up as powerful mm. and vital as we are. And we, and we even see Michael at the end of this film sitting in a chair, Yeah, you know, and yes, he's very powerful, but he's also lost, almost everything at yeah. this point yeah, yeah. um and there's some something that's so strange in feeling about you're confronting the terror of your youth mm. the this powerful person who's so dangerous and you know that Vito has probably had nightmares about this guy yeah. you know i mean he watched this guy kill his mother you know right in front of him um and so to then confront this person who's just barely there mm -hmm. is so strange and and don tomasino is making the introductions and saying, this is my partner for America and olive oil company. And he wants your blessing. And the guy you know, says, come closer, ask his name. He says, he says his name is Vito Corleone. Mm -hmm. And the guy laughs. He's like, oh, you took the name of your town. So what's your father's name? Antonio Andolini. And Vito says it quietly first. Yeah. And I think the tension of this moment. Oh, yeah. Is so amazing. The guy says louder so I can hear you. And this is for you. I remember this, seeing this the first time so clearly because yeah, yeah. it is so brutal. It is. It is. Yeah. To even think to take the knife and go across, uh, diagonally across the body and leave the knife in there. That's the ultimate insult to yank it and then drag it across. And he says, hijo de puta, which is son of a bitch, which is what the old man utters mm. there in Italian as he's killing him. And even like, you know, and he spits on him and stuff. So it's just like, it's the final insult. And I wonder, Steve, does this happen if he listens to the mother and doesn't kill the doesn't attempt to kill the veto doesn't kill the mom like does any of this is, is does cheech live a long life and dies peacefully in his bed if he has one moment of mercy for this family because it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy he said no if i leave the kid alive he will one day come back and take out his vengeance and he does but it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you have to ask yourself well if you had shown mercy to the mom Vito never leaves for america Vito stays there Vito does his thing there and and maybe as he gets older he might come after you but he'd be a teenager and you could easily take care of him but by letting by killing the mom and not being able to capture him heads off to america becomes this powerful person and heads back and takes out his vengeance but it's twofold right because Vito never does anything without it being a business interest twofold killing cheech Don Cheech, right, and putting himself in that position allows him to take over that area of Italy so that later when he sends Michael in Godfather 1, he knows it's a safe place overall because he's established himself there as well. So when you first started talking, I went, I 100% think that he would not kill him if he had left because that was the deal. Yeah. And Vito's going to, you know, it's honor bound to, to stick with the deal. Right. 
But then what I realized, and this is maybe we're not going to get to the end of this thing, but, but because the thought that I had is, okay, Vito's son was killed by Barzini and by Tataglia. Right. Um, and he says in the meeting, it won't bring back my son. It won't bring yeah. back your son. We're going to make an agreement. And I swear that I'm not going to break the peace unless you attack Michael. Right. And if you attack Michael, then all bets are off. So and then what you and I have discussed throughout this is, okay. then Vito dies. Then Michael wipes out the heads of the five family, which is some which is violating that deal to some degree, although he does think that uh, Barzini was going to kill him. Right. So the question is, would was Vito always planning on killing the heads of the five families or was he going to honor the thing that he said, Mm -hmm. unless you make a move on Michael? everything is peaceful because that question is the same question here. Do you honor the deal that you're, that was made with a person that killed a bunch of members of your family because you have a deal? Or do you say, fuck this deal? <laughs> like this person killed members of my family. It depends on your constant, your emotional makeup, who you are as a person. Uh, there are people who would be like, I, I respect the deal. I will honor the deal. And then there are people who like, Fuck that deal. I was a child when it was made. I had no agency in the deal. So I will do as I wish. And I think uh, Michael waits for Vito to die on purpose because he knows that it would shame Vito, uh, his dad, if he killed the five heads of the five families while Vito was still alive. And nothing mattered to Vito Corleone more than his word and his honor uh, and his dignity and within the business that he ran. And so if he had tricked these guys into getting it would just I think it would hurt him as a person, a man of ethics, you know, whereas Michael knows once Vito dies, Michael doesn't care because Michael didn't make the deal. Vito did. So Michael can do what he wants. That's how Michael views it, in my opinion. I don't. Yeah. Whatever your feelings are about that. I just feel like that's how Michael sees it. I didn't make the deal. So it doesn't matter. to me. It's so funny. I'm so glad you brought up this question, because I actually think it goes to the heart of the films, because one of the hearts of the films is. For what reason do you commit violence? Yeah. Is it, as Michael says with the Salazzo thing, it's not personal. It's just business. Hmm. Is it uh, what Vito says at the beginning? That is not justice. Your daughter is still alive. That implies that there is some code. Mm-hmm. We we will kill these people. We won't kill these people. Right. But we also discuss why did Michael kill Mo Green? Did right. he kill him because he was mean to his brother? You know, did he kill him to get a business advantage? In which case he is a murderer and he's not, you know, just having a level feel of justice or the prostitute that he kills in order to blackmail the senator. It's like this question of when is it okay to murder someone, you know? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question to have. I think there's a difference between Vito and Michael in that Vito kills out of business necessity and it may be personal, but Vito never makes it personal. Michael always makes it personal. And I feel like Michael enjoys the killing more than Vito does. Michael likes the feeling of power he gets from the killing more than Vito does. I think and I think he, he jumps to murder much quicker yes. than Vito. Vito I think sees v- it as a, as a last resort and Michael sees it as a, a, a first option. Yeah, exactly. That's the difference. Yeah. Um, and so we have a gunfight to get out. Don Tomasino gets hit. And now we're back in the town square, which is where young Vito left on the back of the donkey. And we're in front of the church. And 
everyone's shaking hands and then we're on the train and we're waving goodbye and Vito is holding Michael's hand and waving goodbye from the train window. Michael, say goodbye. And by the way, uh, I had said, oh, is Sicily, this is the first time Michael's going to Sicily when we did Godfather 1. Obviously, mm. that's not true because he's here. He was oh, there right. as a little kid. Good point. One last thing before we leave Italy. I love the fact that they show how Tomasino ends up in the wheelchair. And it's brilliant. <laughs> you didn't have to do that. Didn't need to do that. But that was a way of giving a little bit of connective tissue to the films. Uh, all three films, really, if, we'll, if we ever get to The Godfather 3. Uh, but yeah. Well, and, and I think that's a great point because that's, you know, there's so much detail in this movie yeah. and this yep. he doesn't he doesn't throw a spotlight on it. It's very subtle, mm-hmm. um, but he shows us just that little bit. And then from this really happy moment, uh, we dissolve to Tahoe um, and there's lots of people there. And Connie is there with the kids and we move into this house in this very somber scene because mom has died. Yeah. Fredo is weeping at the coffin. Oh, man. This is the point where I start to become so f- fucking sympathetic for him, Steve. Yes, he's stupid. Yes, he's made mistakes. Yes, he risked his brother's life. But he, just like Connie says later, he's just this so lost without some strong hand to guide him. And seeing him cry, I wonder if he's crying. Obviously, he's crying for the loss of his mother, which we never really see any tender moments between them. Do you remember, do you know that? Like, we never see any tender moments between Mama Corleone and Fredo. Uh, none. And yet his tears are just so massive. But also it might be Fredo suspecting that now with mom gone, there's nothing to stop Michael from killing it. You know, I, I, I my gut is that the thought that his brother is going to kill him at this point. Well, I don't know. Actually, no, he could very well be thinking that. Um, uh, well, this is like it's like the shot of fredo staying in the room with Vito and godfather when right. everyone else goes down to dinner right good point steve that's I, a great connection and the way he he hugs michael when he's drunk at the wedding it's like yeah. he's a really loving person yes he, he loved his mom yeah. um and he just falls into connie's arms just weeping and then there's this cut and it's just a little cut where they cut to neary and i just think man does neary already know that he's gonna have to kill this guy yeah by the way, for those of you not watching, oh, John yes. was nodding. <laughs> <laughs> You're used to your yes. YouTube shows. <laughs> I know. I apologize. Yes, he does know. I mean, the second Michael walked away from that meeting with Fredo by the window is yeah. he knows what's happening. Yeah. Um, and Fredo goes to talk to Tom to ask where Mike is. And Tom says, it's just the worst. Don't where's Mike? Waiting for you to leave. <sighs> And Connie's there, and Fredo asks to talk with him, and Tom says, no chance. But Connie does go to see him in the boathouse, and we go to this scene. It's really dark in there. Michael's just sitting in the dark, in silence with his kids, who just lost their grandmother. He's not speaking. I don't think he's – we don't know what happened the moment before we walked into the scene, but I don't think he's – comforting his kids or talking to them about death or expressing yeah. love. He's like, we have to stay here until your uncle Fredo leaves, you know, yeah. the funeral because I mean, it's just really terrible. Yeah. Um, and Connie comes in and just kneels in front of him like a supplicant to yeah. the King. I'd like to stay close to home now. If it's all right. And she looks over at the kids who are just sitting there in silence. It's such a dark moment. And she asks the kind of control he has. Yeah. They're scared. Yeah. Yeah. Do the kids, 
other than Anthony uh, in the scene in bed with Michael at the beginning, did the kids ever speak? Not that I recall. Michael Fred is in the house with Mama. He asked for you and Tom said you wouldn't see him. That's right. And she tries to get the kids to leave. (laughs) They don't go right away. It's Yeah. It's got to be Michael who says they can leave. Even in a, even in the most minute situations, Michael is in control of everything. Yeah, and and the thing to remember in the in the previous scene where they're waiting in the hall while the big fight is happening inside, we had Anthony leaning against the wall because he knew bad stuff was happening, yeah. and yeah. the daughter skipping and playing because she doesn't. That is not true anymore. Now yeah. the daughter knows that yeah. things are bad. Yep. Michael, I hated you for so many years. I think that I did things to myself to hurt myself so that you'd know and I could hurt you. What do you think of that statement? I love this scene, Steve, because it's 1974, right? I don't know where we are on the prism of exploring uh, therapy and exploring self-analysis and exploring uh, speaking your feelings, speaking your truth, vulnerability. But what Connie says here is so advanced in terms of um, Mm. relationship conversation. And yes, they're brother and sister, but that's still a relationship. And what she says is so honest and vulnerable and truthful. And a lot of people don't know, and they have to go on their own journeys to figure out when they're doing the things that they're doing when they're younger, they're rebelling, they're uh, angry. And so they're hurting themselves because they also don't value themselves uh, in these situations. And it isn't until later something happens and hopefully something happens that snaps them out of that pattern and they realize, God, I'm doing all of this and the only person suffering is me. The only person who is being hurt by my actions is me. Uh, and I have to stop that, reclaim my life, and you know, kind of come back to center and move forward. I've done that. I worked out whatever I need to work out. I need to move on. And this is also her you know, working out the death of her father as well. Like a lot of people react so differently to the loss of a parent or the loss of a loved one. You never know how it manifests itself. And her surrendering this kind of honesty to Michael is, is really powerful when you contrast it to the scene <laughs> they had earlier in the film when she first walks into this with, with Mel. And sits down with them, or whatever his name is, Tab Hunter. Well, he sits down with them, and and uh, she is just like, I need money. And just like all these shots at Michael, juxtapose that in the same room. They're having a scene all this time later, and Connie is absolutely just completely at his knees, like you said, on her knees, at his knees, uh, surrendering her loyalty and fealty to him and understanding that maybe Michael was right all along about trying to get her to focus on her family more, but she had to go on her journey and now she's surrendering this to Michael. It's very powerful. I, it's so funny because I totally agree with basically everything you say. And yet the conclusion, like that's where it's like, <laughs> so what does that mean? It's like, I think she, I think she was trying to hurt him. I think she yes. was hurting herself in order to hurt him. I think she hadn't dealt with her anger, with her sorrow, with her loss. And I think she's has come to terms with that and realized some truths about herself. Yeah. But she is also returning to her abuser, essentially. Oh, great. Point. You know what I mean? I mean, Michael is a terrible person. Right. She, right. You know, so, so, and, and this is the thing she says, you were just being strong for all of us the way Papa was. And I forgive you. What is she forgiving him for? 
um, maybe for uh, for um, what happened to Sonny. Uh, sorry, what happened to Carlo? Because that's what she's always blaming him for that. And uh, also maybe for the way he has the shots he's taken at her, the judgment he's laid on her, things of that like that over the years. Um, and uh, maybe the way he's kind of like, because we never see Connie's kids, man. We never yeah. see. And even a Godfather 3, we never see Connie's kids. Very interesting who gets to be allowed in the family and who doesn't. So, but like, that is what I, uh, what I see here is just, she's just saying, you know, like I forgive you for killing uh, my husband uh, and for essentially sending me down this path because it was well, a couple of my father and my husband. Well, and this is the thing. This is why it's, it's such an abusive situation because yeah. she's not saying, okay, I believe that you didn't kill my husband. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's saying, I, I know you were being strong for the family and I forgive you. And this is at the exact moment where he's not seeing his own brother at the death of their mother. And yeah. the previ- the ne- other line she asked about is, where's Kay? No, Kay's not coming. And she looked at these really sad kids. Yeah. And she is still, you know, bowing down to this guy because that's the only way for her to live. And this is the note I wrote down. She says, Can't you forgive Fredo? He's so sweet and helpless without you. You need me, Michael. I want to take care of you now. And there's this long, slow look. And here's the note I wrote at this moment. When she says, I want to take care of you now, I wrote one more abusive relationship for Connie. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, where she's not going to be physically hit, but maybe emotionally hit. Uh, And certainly, you know, and she's not without a rebellion, as we see later, as she allows Kay to see the kids. She's not out of the realm of being able to, to push back a little bit. But I also think, Steve, I think Connie is smarter now. She understands, like, to exist in this world, to exist yeah. in her family's world, to exist in the world of her brother, which she cannot get away from. She knows she needs it. She knows she needs back into the family. She needs a strong paternal figure. I'm not saying it's correct, right? I want to make sure this is very clear. There's a difference between whether this is morally correct or not, whether this is emotionally correct or not, but if you sense from the character, she understands that she needs this kind of protection in her life. She likes this life um, and she can now Navigate this life better because I think she thinks that she can understand Michael and the fact that Michael now doesn't have a maternal figure with Kay gone and with mom gone, Connie can slide into that role. And as we see in Godfather three, she really does come into that role very powerfully. And that's the irony of this whole uh, trilogy is that Connie actually becomes the most noble of them all and the most, um, I don't know, just the more, more, most powerful of them all in how she dictates things. Uh, and she's the last one standing, brother. She's the last one mm. standing. And I think for all that, sh- and that shows you sometimes uh, the power of a woman, the power of women. They have this spine to understand how to navigate a patriarchal world. And they sometimes have the strength to have to swallow a bunch of shit just to survive. And they come out on top in the end. Um, and now, of course, that's changing, thank God, because well, hopefully it's a way more even world, a way more uh, a balanced world. But during this time, these times, these dates, these eras in the, in the history of a man, a woman in this country, Connie understands to exist and have the benefits of the family. She's going to have to navigate Michael. And she thinks that she can be a softer influence on Michael than maybe Kay or his mom was. Uh, I, I yeah. Know. I, th- I think that's you, you just hit the nail on the head, which is that 
She has come to these understandings about herself. Yeah, about herself. She, about these truths. And then she made the decision of, well, this is the life that I want. I don't want to be outside the family. Right. And therefore, if I'm going to be inside the family, then this is what this is what I, I have to do. And this is how I have to do it. And and man, he reaches out and touches her face. Yeah. And but he doesn't he sits like he's still sitting like a mm -hmm. king. He never gives of himself. He accepts that she will be a part of his life now right. and her support, but he gives nothing of himself. And then it's later and we're back to the, the room where the funeral is and the music is strong and we see Michael walk across the room. It's very, very formal. And again, Fredo is in this amazing pose, you know, the way he has his body and he sees Michael and the look on his face of love and forgiveness and, and great gratitude and and fear yeah because he doesn't know what michael's gonna do yeah up at that's true then michael steps forward yeah. and embraces fredo wow i mean the moment is so powerful yeah direction in the score works so powerfully to bring this moment to life well and i think for me of course i can't remember but at this moment my I bet I believed that mm. that they had made up because that's how movies work. <laughs> yeah. You know, because um, this is the moment of forgiveness and it's going to be OK and the family can come because I don't know that this movie is just going to be a horrible tragedy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then Michael looks at Neri. <laughs> oh, God. And Neri, out of shame, looks down. It just catches his eyes, looks at Michael. He knows what Michael is essentially saying, and he looks down because he knows he's going to have to kill Fredo. It's so, such a powerful scene without words, man. The brilliance of film, brother. The brilliance of film. Well, and then you go back to the you know the Senate where they said, "Did did you ever get direct orders to do it?" It's like right. it's like no, we had a lot of buffers, you know. <laughs> and it's like no, Michael didn't say to Neri, "Right, kill my brother." You know, if he, right. if anyone ever gets arrested, did Michael Corleone order you to kill Fredo Corleone? Right. No. He just looked at me. <laughs> it's later on, and there's a scene with Fredo and Anthony uh, sitting on the water's edge with a fishing pole. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we go back inside, and we're having a meeting. And when Tom comes into this meeting, Michael asks him if something's wrong, which, no, there's nothing wrong. Yeah. And the meeting is about Hyman Roth, who is apparently trying to get in to live in Israel. The high court in Israel turned down his request to live there as a return Jew. Because the rule uh, is, I think it's called universal return. No, I can't remember. But basically, I could go live in Israel. Any Jew anywhere in the world can basically become a citizen of Israel at any time. That's one of their basic laws. But they said no to Hyman Roth. Uh, which is also true about Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky mm. tried to go live. He was kind of a man without a country uh, and tried to live in Israel, tried to live in Panama, offered millions of dollars to live in Panama like Hyman Roth does. They said no. Every And, and it's like, well, he's, he's only with his medical condition. He's only got six months to live and dying of the same heart attack for 20 years. <laughs> and then it ends up he's going to be back in Miami. Um, and Michael says, that's where I want him met. Again, he doesn't say that's where I want him killed. Right. He says that's where I want him met. Mike, that's impossible. They'll turn him over directly to the Internal Revenue, Customs, and half the FBI. It's not impossible. 
and he's eating an orange. Does anyone eat an orange the way that Michael Corleone is eating an orange? I don't know. I don't know. I've never seen anyone eat it the way he does it. Because it's like half peeled and he's biting into it like an apple. It just seems strange. I would like to know if any of our cinephiles, if that's, and that's no disrespect. If that's how you want to eat an orange, it's totally fine. I've just never seen it that way. No disrespect. No disrespect. (laughs) It would be like trying to kill the president. There's no way we can get to him. Tom, you know, you surprise me. If anything in this life is certain, if history's taught us anything, it says you can kill anyone. And Tom has a reaction, and we look over at Rocco, who says, difficult, not impossible. Not knowing that he's signing his own death warrant in that moment. Rocco is. Right. Right. And when Michael says, if history's taught us anything, it's that you can kill anyone, he's looking at Tom. Yep. And and this is, again, because everything is symbolic. Everything is about these looks. Nothing is direct. And so Tom says... Well, why did you ask me if something was wrong when I came in? I thought you were going to tell me that uh, you were moving your family to Vegas and that you've been offered the uh, vice presidency of the house and hotels there. I turned him down, Michael. Do, not, do I have to tell you about every offer I get? Like, even in that moment, he must rule by fear. He knows no other way to rule, Steve. Even with his own family, he knows no other way to rule but fear. And is... Is Tom afraid in that moment? Uh, Yes, of course. I think Tom, his love of Michael and his fear of Michael have now become so intertwined, Steve, it's impossible to differentiate the two. I think he is genuinely afraid. And this is why, again, because of no direct orders, any man can be gotten to, any man can be killed, and and he's looking at you. And then the next thing he says is, I thought you would tell me this thing. Yeah. Um, and we get back to business and we hear about Roth and the Rosados. And is it worth it? I mean, you've won. You want to wipe everybody out? I don't feel I have to wipe everybody out. Tom. Just my enemies. And I was what I was thinking about is the difference between Tom and Michael and Tom and Sonny. Mm. What was Tom's relationship with Sonny when Sonny was the Don? Uh, it was the concierge. Right. Yeah. And how did they relate to each other? Like brothers, uh, more personal. And they argued. The war's costing us a lot of money. Nothing's coming in. We can't do business. Well, neither can they. Don't they worry don't about it. Please don't here. worry about we it. can't afford a stalemate. Well, then there ain't no more stalemate. I'm going to end it by killing that old bastard. I'm gonna yeah, you're getting a great it. reputation. I hope you're enjoying well, it. Well, you just do what I tell you to do. God damn it. If I had a wartime conciliary of Sicilian, I wouldn't be in a shape. Battling with each other. Tom was looser with his opinions with sunny than he is with michael that's for sure and sunny who got angry and, and insulted him and hurt his feelings and stuff like that sunny would listen think right. my, you think tom ever argues with michael like that uh no no but that's the point yeah do you think michael listens no me neither yeah that's what i think too you're gonna come along with me in these things i have to do or what because if not you can take your wife your family and your mistress, move them all to Las Vegas. Duval at this moment. Why do you hurt me, Michael? I've always been loyal to you. I mean, what is this? And what did we just see with Connie? She had to completely debase herself. Yeah. And take all the blame and say, in order, I'm 100% team Michael. And then he would accept her, not as an equal, not as a sister, but as a 
you know, a supplicant. Yes. And now he's doing the same thing to Tom. You're either a hundred percent with me or you can get the hell out. Yeah. Woof. The Duval's performance is great in this. Yeah. Scene. Uh, what I wonder too, mm-hmm. what does Tom think would happen if he did decide to leave and go to Vegas with his wife and his kids and his mistress and take this other job? Oh, I think Michael would eventually, you can't get out of this family. Are yeah. you crazy? You can't get out of this family. Yeah. I think, I think there, I, I don't think Tom has a choice. No, I think, I think if he tried to leave, he's dead. Yes. Um, we're out with Fredo and Anthony. It's magic hour saying it's gorgeous is redundant, but it is. And they have this scene about fishing <laughs> and, and that Fredo has the secret to fit catching fish. He always caught more fish because he would say a hail Mary right before he, he cast. And it, there's this connection with the two of them. Yeah. This is the note I have here. Fredo is good for Anthony. Right. Like Anthony has been living in this horrible place emotionally. His mom said, look what it's doing to our son, you know, which Michael won't acknowledge when Fredo is there. There is an adult in the house who loves him. Yeah. Which I thought a lot about of like, oh, Michael killing Fredo isn't just doing something bad to Fredo. He's taking away the one adult that is connecting with his with his son, you know. Okay, Frankie, don't worry. Then my brother go back. Yeah. Don't worry. He's ten times tougher than me, my brother. He could have been big here, he could have had his own family. And then he asks, What do I do now? This scene has always struck me as weird. Okay. <laughs> because he says, Frankie, you are always interested in politics and history. It's just sort of like, really? I mean, there's nothing we've never heard anything that would give us that impression up oh, to well, this point. Yeah. You just assume that they've had these conversations before, so to speak. On a plot against the emperor failed. Plotters were always given a chance to let the families keep their fortunes. And basically, Frankie says, yeah, but only if they would kill themselves. If they killed themselves, then nothing would happen and their families would get taken care of. They, uh, they went home and sat in a hot bath, opened up their veins, and... And in this moment, you can see Tom look down at Frankie's wrists. Yep. Because, again, we're not going to say, Tom doesn't say, listen, you betrayed Michael, but if you go home and kill yourself, then everything ends here and your family can keep their house and that we're not going to touch them. If you don't kill yourself, then we are going to go after your family. Right. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Again, Steve. The family had a lot of buffers. The family had a lot, <laughs> a lot of, of buffers. <laughs> yep. And then he shakes Tom's hand. Don't worry about anything, Frankie Five Angels. Thanks, Tom. I love that he calls him Frankie Five Angels as he yeah. says goodbye. Yep. It's brilliant. It's it's a really interesting, good scene. Mm. I think I think what what's odd about this section of the movie is that. To some degree, we've lost narrative thrust. And and what I mean by that is we knew, oh, shit, Frankie's going to testify against Michael. Right. That's what we have. That's the that's what's creating tension. We knew, oh, Finucci is a problem. And how are we going to deal with Finucci? Right. Now it's or, or even like Fredo betrayed me or Hyman Roth or and now it's sort of like. There isn't a specific tension. Mm-hmm. We're advancing these character moments, but it's yeah. sort of like 
and I mean this in a good way. It's like, wait, what's the movie about? What's happening now? You know? Yeah. And, and then what you realize is you're all, everything is ramping up to this final sequence, much like the, the murders at the end of Godfather. Yep. Back in Tahoe, Kay is visiting her kids. Mm. Kay, you have to go. This scene is so painful. Yeah. Connie's trying to get her to leave because Michael's getting here. And, and it's almost like a monster movie. You know what I mean? Harry, please hurry. He's coming. And she hugs her daughter. She asks Anthony to kiss mama goodbye. Okay. And he doesn't. And Connie's like, Anthony, will you kiss your mother goodbye? <laughs> and, which is a classic, you know, yeah. thing. Uh, and they embrace. And Connie's in the foreground. And she's going, please, please. And she's trying to get out. And it's so funny. Like, this is what I, what I was thinking about. It's like, before... She couldn't leave. She was right. a prisoner in her house. Right. Now she can't stay. And she wants one more kiss from Anthony and then starts to go. And there is Michael. Yeah. She's in the doorway. Again, we're at doorways. He steps into the light, advancing on her. Yeah. They look at each other and he closes the door on her face. Yep. Oof. And watch Diane Keaton's face because right at the last second, yeah, you see her face change right as the door comes and slams in front of her. Yep. She's decimated. It is so awful. Yeah. And then this last moment, we see Michael looking at something. We don't actually see what he's looking at, but yeah. it seems as if he's looking at his son. Yeah. What is he thinking in this moment? I, I mean, just that, you know, she can't be a part of their family anymore, you know? And so, and almost reinforcing what he's probably telling the kids when they hang out with him. I mean, do you think Michael is the kind of father to be like, no, no, don't disrespect your mother. Don't know. Michael, no. everything is uh political maneuvering, even within the family. Uh, so I'm sure he's been poisoning them slowly, but surely against Kay. Uh, and of course that bears fruit in, later on in, in Godfather part three, uh, the actions he takes uh, when he's younger uh, against the family, which, you know, um, feelings about that movie separately. It's so funny because I still haven't rewatched Godfather three. So it's all very vague in my mind. <laughs> um, here's the thought that I had about Michael. And of course, I don't know. I wonder if there is a part of his brain that knows he's fucking up. No, that there's a part I, I'm that there's a like a little voice that says, you're not doing the right thing. <laughs> Cut this shit out. Yeah. Like, look at you just slammed the door on your child's mom. Your right. son is really sad. Like, if there's oh. some part of him, you think not. No, but I don't I know. Think, I think this is the hubris of man at this time and men at this time. Remember, Steve, when this is happening. Yes, it's 1974 when the film comes out, but it's this is what, the 50s? Late 50s. Late yeah, 50s. Late. This is the time where you could slap your wife around and not go to jail. Like it was expected that you could beat your wife or slap your wife and it was never an issue. That was part of the deal. They could have sex with you whenever they felt like it was a very patriarchal society. So to him, there is no sense of duty there's no i mean sorry there's no sense of shamelessness or shame sorry of what he's doing 
he thinks he's doing the right thing because he sees K now as a corrosive uh, influence. The fact that he killed, she killed their child to Michael in the Catholic tradition, to Michael who adheres to that kind of thing, whether he practices it or not, there's still that fallback uh, on religion to use as some kind of weapon or sword within the mafia at this time. Uh, he can use that to hate Kay. And so in a way he is saying like, she is a, um, a destructive energy to have around the kids because she killed one of you mm. in her womb. And the fact that she said this whole Sicilian thing, I wouldn't bring another one of your sons into this world. There's a hatred when she says that. Right. And so I think Michael feels at that moment, cause he's riding high on the hog. Michael feels that he has every right to mistreat her and shut her out and limit her access to the kids uh, and talk about and defile her uh, verbally uh, to the kids behind her back. I think all that makes perfect sense. I think this is also why I'm just not a vengeful person because, (laughs) because I just go like, what good is it? What good am I doing? Like the only thing that's happening now is him damaging his children. Yes. Like what, like we said, we'll find out later how that, uh, how that plays out. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, You know, it's like in punishing your wife for what you perceive as her sins, you're actually damaging your kids. Mm -hmm. So therefore what's the, what are you getting out of punishing K? Like you get, Nothing um, to me, but that's how, you know, that's how my brain works. Connie is more advanced than Michael. Connie was able to say, I realized that by punishing that I was punishing myself as I was trying to punish you all. Michael doesn't realize that he's punishing his kids. Okay. And himself in the long run um, uh, until later, you know, does someone have to have accept their own weaknesses or flaws in order to realize things? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't think you have to see them as flaws or weaknesses. You're human. So we all make mistakes. We all think we know or what we're doing in the moment is the right thing. Um, and maybe some of us suspect it's not the right thing in the moment, but we have no other option in our minds or can't stop ourselves. And so... I think we're all capable of making emotional mistakes in relationships. That's why relationships are fraught with uh, emotional uh, mistakes and ramifications and damage and what have you. It's the most, um, it's the biggest minefield you have in your life is our relationships with yourself and with others. Uh, And so um, I don't know if I call them weaknesses in essence, as I get older, I think it's more a matter of your humanity. Um, and do you have to admit you're wrong? No, but I think you have to make amends. I like everything you said. Here's what I think is that you have to see that, that bad things have happened and that you're part of what those things. Yes. I don't think Michael, like Connie, had to just do some soul searching to get to where she got to. Yes. Faye, to make the decision to leave Michael, had to do some soul searching. Fredo feels tremendous guilt about the decisions that he made. Mm-hmm. And has done some soul searching. I think Michael might accept that he makes miscalculations and has to make better calculations in the future. But right. I don't think Michael ever goes, man, I did this wrong. You not, know? not till later. Not no. as we see in Godfather Part 3, how much he how much he's willing to admit that he, how the, the mistakes he made in the past, which I think is a cop out. Again, I'm not going to get too deep. We'll get, yeah, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Um, 
And again, from this, we have a hard cut into that boat getting lowered into the water. An incredible shot. Michael's in the boathouse. It's very dark. The boat comes over to where Fredo and Anthony are because they're going to go fishing. Yeah. Except at the last minute, Connie calls Anthony and says, oh, you know, Michael wants to take him to Reno. So, sorry, no no trip out on the boat. Yeah. My assumption is Connie has no idea what was going to happen. Connie has no clue because in Godfather 3, they have an interaction where he says to her, I know you Oh, she says to him, I know you feel guilty about what happened to Fredo, but he could have drowned at any time. I know, the, she has no clue that she has been used by Michael. As you just said, Steve, the, the, the way he makes Connie pay loyalty to him and then he's willing to use her in essence to facilitate the death of her own brother. Um. That's how much of a disgusting human being Michael uh, Corleone is. Truly. And and you know how I said we had this sort of narrative drift? Yeah. At this moment of calling Anthony away, we're not dr- – we go, oh, shit. Yep. Like if you had believed to some degree them making up at the funeral, like now it's like, oh, no, I know what's going to happen. And the strange, ambiguous scene with Frankie, like – Oh, now I am starting to understand what's going to happen because we go from there. Michael watching from the boathouse. We go to Hyman Roth arriving at the airport. Can you give us your reaction to the High Court of Israel's ruling? I'm a retired investor on a pension. I went to Israel because I wished to live there as a Jew in the twilight of my life. He looks so just sort of defeated, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, at the army base... The FBI guys call out to Frankie to come play some cards. No answer. In Tahoe, we see leaves blowing. The boat is out on the lake. We're back to the airport. Someone says, is it true that you're worth over $300 million to Hyman Roth? I'm a retired investor living on a pension. I came home to vote in the presidential election because they wouldn't give me an absentee ballot. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that means this is 1960. Yeah, because of this presidential election. Oh, right. With uh, Kennedy. So this yep. Kennedy Nixon. I assume. I don't think it's 64. That yeah, wouldn't make sounds sense. Good. Meyer Lansky fled to Cuba uh, and he was said to be worth yeah. maybe 20 million dollars when he died, which is much later in 1983. They found out his estate was worth fifty seven thousand dollars. Wow. So That's nobody it. knows where all that money went. Wow. Yeah. And at this moment, there's Rocco kills Hyman Roth and immediately gets killed. And this to me totally looks like Oswald. And uh, mm. when he gets killed. Yeah. Jack Ruby. Yeah, yeah, Jack yeah. Ruby. That's what it totally looks like. I could see that. Yeah. Did Michael know Rocco was going to die? Uh, I think every time you send someone out to do a, uh, an assassination, you factor that possibility in. They thought Michael was going to die in the first film, mm. remember? That's true. But there was a possibility. And, of course, uh, his Hungarian painter friend, who you pointed out, died trying to kill Hyman Roth the first time. So that is a possibility. Uh, so it's not impossible if you're willing to sacrifice a soldier to do it. You know. Um, and then we cut to Frankie in the bathtub, his wrist bleeding. Yeah. And then we cut back to the boat. And this is the thing is like, if you wanted to deny that Michael was going to kill his brother, we were now building to it in this way. And there's such dread. 
And we see Michael looking through the window in this incredible shot where it's just lit perfectly just enough to see him. Yeah. And the way they shoot this, shoot the shooting of Fredo Mm -hmm. is he's saying his Hail Mary, which I think it's kind of amazing that he's praying at the moment of his death. I think tells us if we believe in a Catholic view of the world that maybe Fredo's going to go to heaven. Yeah. And the camera pushes in. And as it's pushing in, we see the gun just off frame for a moment. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. We push in on Fredo, and then we cut back to Michael and the gunshot. And Michael looks down. He has killed his brother. And back at the boat, we hear birds, and Al stands up because he's about to push the dead body of Fredo into the lake. Yeah. Michael, sitting in the dark, puts his hand to his face, which is something he does a few times. Mm. And I just, this is what I wrote down. He is all alone, completely alone. And then I had to say something really weird, which is, I've seen this movie many times. Yep. I swear to God, every time James Caan comes into frame (laughs) in the glass, it surprises me. Hey, everybody, come on, pay attention. (laughs) <laughs> even though i know that the, we got to go back in time to the scene it just always is so because i'm so emotionally in this moment of yeah, michael yeah. killing his brother and that's all my that's my brain is a hundred percent there yeah yeah that when he shows up i'm like oh shit that's right but i think that's on, obviously that's intentional right from coppola he wants to shake you out of this moment but he wants to dig the knife in even deeper like and this is this is why you cannot understand what happened to Coppola in the eighties and nineties. And recently, like you just can't understand how a man capable of such beautiful drama and such unrelenting tragedy in his compositions of his films in the seventies, you know, is doing Jack with Robin Williams. It just doesn't make sense to you. Cause in this, this moment, the moment is already so devastating for the audience And just to make the point even more clear, he shows you a time when they were all happy and how they're all dead. Carlo is dead. Fredo is dead. Sonny is dead. Vito is dead. Uh, um, Tessio's dead. Tessio's dead. Everyone is dead. And we go back to this scene with them around the dinner table and we see the beginnings of Michael asserting his independence from the family in this conversation. And they're there to celebrate Vito's birthday. You know, I think this is a certain kind of genius, yeah. this scene that is above and beyond. Right. Because it's like thinking entirely outside of the box. It's not this is the story I'm telling. What is the best way to tell it? And like, oh, I this I want this kind of set design. I want this kind of lighting design all to tell this kind of story. This is, I'm going to go cut to something totally unexpected and outside of the realm that isn't narrative in the sense that the, the story is over. The story ended when Michael killed his brother. Right. This is just something else. It's like poetry. And yeah, as you say, like, here, meet my friend Carlo. Mm-hmm. Just that is like, we can see the whole sequence of tragedies that meet my friend Carlos starts. It's my friend Carlo Riz. It's my brother Fredo. Oh, you know, sure. Here's my stepbrother Tom. This cute little thing over here. This is my sister Connie. I was telling you about it, huh? 
Come on, say hello to Carl. He's good looking, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> oh, that droopy thing over there, that's my brother Mike. We call him Joe College, you know what I mean? And again, Al Pacino's amazing ability to play this scary older guy yeah. and then play this guy. By the way, James Kahn, in order to do this, asked for the same amount of money he got for the entire movie to do this one scene, and he got it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> he didn't get paid. Yeah, he didn't get paid that much for the first one anyway. So, <laughs> um, and Tessio shows up with the cake, and we're asking where Dad is, and of course, they thought Vito was going to be that that Brando was going to do it until I think just the night before. And Carlo goes to help Connie. And it's just it's just family stuff. It just feels like this happy family that's all together. And what then we find out that Vito's birthday is December 7th. And this is December 7th, 1941. You know, the nerve of the Japanese to attack <laughs> Pearl Harbor on dad's birthday. And Fredo, because Fredo's not smart, says they didn't know it was dad's birthday. Uh, yeah, they, of course, <laughs> they didn't know it was dad's birthday. Fredo, it's a joke. I understand 30,000 men enlisted this morning. Watch your saps. And Michael speaks up. Why are they saps? Indeed, what? Steve. Why are they saps? Yeah. What kind of person would say that about people who serve in the military to defend this country? Well, what kind of person would say they're saps or what's in it for them? Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of anybody that I would respect that would say something like that. Agreed. They're saps because they risk their lives for strangers. God damn. It's so resonant to hear those lines again, considering what we heard, and maybe you'll cut this out, what we heard uh, the former president say, according to a piece in The Atlantic, where he was saying the exact same things, the exact I, same things. I'm not going to cut it out because it's 100 percent. That's just true. Yep. Like, that's not us offering a political opinion. Mm-hmm. Donald That's, Trump yep. said, why would anyone enroll? What's in it for them? That is, That was his worldview. According to a number of credible sources. But frankly, the most evil person in this room is the person who says, I risk, the, I risk their lives for their country. Your country ain't your blood. You remember that. I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way. Well, if you don't feel like that, why don't you just quit college and go to, go to join the army? I did. We find out he's enlisted in the Marines. There is a huge reaction. Tom, and it's so funny where we just saw Tom yeah. being totally dominated by Michael. Because he's like, look, you're, why'd you do that? Your dad and I got you the deferment. We've been talking about you know, our, the plans for you and where your life is going to go. Now, many times, he and I have talked about your future. Talked to my father about my future. My future. You know, he's talked about the scene where after the shooting, where he goes to Tom and says, I always thought of you as my brother and I love you. And and we kind of went, is that real? Is that not real? Based on this moment, I think it's not real. Yeah. I think he resented Tom's closeness with his father. And in particular, what it's like, wait, you're not even part of the family. You don't even blood. You're just a few years older than me. And you're acting like... You're on a par with my dad. Yeah, but you can tell, you can discuss my future. And and Sonny's just pissed off. And he throws the passive aggressive guilt thing that families do. You know, oh, good, good thing. Way to break your father's heart on his birthday. You know, that kind of thing that all of us have been through that or done that in our families, taking that cheap shot in that moment because you're so angry, you're so frustrated. But I think also, Steve, this scene is so gorgeous. And as you said earlier, brilliant because it, is the last time it feels like that they're all happy. It's the last time that they're all in this moment. In the, and who ruins the happiness 
Michael. Yep. And yes, is it for a good cause? Is it to serve our country? Is it to defend our country against the Nazis? Absolutely. But he takes control of his own life, discusses it with no one. And this lays uh, in, re- it's almost a prequel, Steve, in, a mo- in one scene, a prequel of Michael, because it lays the groundwork that Michael is always going to do what's best for Michael. Uh, and he may claim it's for the family, but it's for Michael. Uh, and just like here, he thinks, you know, uh, I'm going to go sign up and I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to discuss it with my brother or my dad. And ironically, that's how I signed up, to be honest with you, for the. but I'm not going to kill my brother or anything. But that's how I signed up for the military, because I knew they talked me out of it. So with here with Michael, though, I think he's doing it as a defiant moment. And once again, to separate himself from the family, Steve, to pull out, to pull away, to not be a part of this. Uh, and what does he do subsequently with his life as the dawn? He is always trying to pull the family out of the idea of it being a mafia family, that he wants to legitimize it constantly. He is driven to be as American as possible. Two things. Yeah. The first thing is, who is the one person that's supportive of Michael in this moment? Fredo. Fredo. <laughs> Fredo. Fredo. Um, that wasn't John do, doing an impression of Vito Corleone. That was John had just taken a drink. <laughs> it's pretty now. Um, um, yeah. And so the person that he's going to end up murdering yeah. is the one person who was supportive in this moment. Once you go to college, you get stupid. You're really stupid. He's here. Come on. And everyone leaves Michael alone. He doesn't go to greet dad nope. who's showing up. And we can hear... The surprise, and for he's a jolly good fellow. And I just feel Brando. It's like I feel Vito's presence. Yeah. He he is there off camera. That just is how it feels. Mm -hmm. Michael alone in this moment, just relating to all the things that you said, I think he doesn't feel connected to the family on some fundamental. He is so alone right now. And so I think it's like, I'm not jovial and emotional like my brother, Sonny, Mm -hmm. you know, who has is anger and happy and, and, you know, passion and all those things. I'm not loving and gentle like my brother Fredo. I'm not, Connie, who's, you know, part of the family, I'm isolated, mm-hmm. you know, and even Tom seemed like he was more a part of the family than I was. He's talking to my dad about my future. He is so isolated and alone in this moment. And then I really like the way you said it is that he, once he comes in charge, he's trying to pull the family to him. Yep. He's not trying to go to them. Right. And then there's this from him alone, drinking at this table, thinking we have this slow dissolve. To Vito in Sicily on the train, waving goodbye with Michael. And this is, again, this is all a movie about a father and a son at the two parts of their lives, but not together. And here they are together at a truly happy moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then man, the dissolve to this final shot, profile, magic hour, Michael sitting in the chair. He looks older and the camera pushes in on him as he's thinking the music hits. I can see there's the wheels turning in your face. (laughs) Like you're having a really strong reaction thinking about this moment. Well, 
Because as we talk about it, that's just so great about doing these uh, shows with you, Steve, is we get into the real classics, the greats in terms of film. Analyzing them and thinking about them and discussing them with them is so much fun because you you all who listen to us might think we're like coming in prepared with all the and certainly Steve does have research prepared about the everything and how this these but I think our conversations also lead us to interesting paths totally. that we discover as two analysts and two intelligent men discussing uh these films. And as you're talking about these three scenes, because it's essentially Michael. Then young Michael, then older Michael. These yeah. three scenes kind of mixed together. It occurred to me just now. The easy thing is, yes, you see the the leaves are decayed, symbolic of the decay inside him, the decay of his family, his connection to his family, the decay of who he is as a person. Certainly, that's true. The fact that he is a al- fall is a colder time. You feel more alone in fall than other times. You feel more excluded. So he's eventually he's essentially isolated himself from every emotional connection that may be Connie by his own doing. And it struck me as I'm li- and it struck me as I was listening to you talk about these three scenes that I wonder if Michael didn't like his father, didn't respect his father, was ashamed of his father, and I think maybe subtly, and it may not be intentional, subtly Coppola is saying that by having Michael not run to his dad to celebrate the birthday, purposely sitting by himself so the family has to come back to the table to him and he can make a show of his defiance, in essence, subtly, but a show. And then you see Michael and the and his, like the love Vito had for Michael waving all of that is this connection. Maybe the last time they were connected was when Michael was a child or an infant or, a, you know, a, a younger age. And as Michael got older and saw what his father was, he didn't want to be that part of the family. I mean, remember he shows up at the, uh, at the uh, opening wedding with a white woman, not an Italian woman shows up wearing his uh, army outfit or his Marine outfit. uh, And that's defiance. Even there he's defiant uh, constantly. I am different from you. I am America. You are not, you embarrass me. I'm ashamed of you. It isn't until his father is almost killed that all of a sudden he has this level of love. Remember, he, there's never a scene where he goes to see his father in his den. He never goes to see his father in his den at the opening of the movie. And so it's just all this stuff happens and they won't take the picture without Michael. So Michael holds back his love constantly and other people have to come to him. And in the end, what does that lead to? Him being alone, him not having anyone but Connie. His kids will grow up to hate him as we see in Godfather 3. Uh, he loses K, the only woman he ever really truly, I guess, and you know, you asked me this question when we first started in Godfather, did he, did Michael really love K? I guess in the end, he really did love K and the, the loss of her, he never replaced her after K left or after they divorced, he never replaced K. So those things all kind of lead you to the point of like, well, you can be on your own emotional Island. If you like, you like, if you want to be in control of every relationship, power relationship, blah, blah, blah. But I think that's the coward's way out. And for all of Michael's badassery and murdering and all this kind of shit, he's a coward when it comes to personal relationships. He's a coward because he won't give up himself because he doesn't want to risk that loss again after Apollonia and all of that. And that is what ends up putting him on the island, emotional island that he's on at the end of the movie in that shot with his fingers on his face and the leaves, the decaying leaves uh, blowing underneath him. And also what leads to the last shot of the Godfather part three, when he just keels over and dies. 
So it's just, it's Michael is a, is a doomed to tragic figure, but he's doomed and tragic by his own hand. And that's the shame and the lesson I think of the trilogy of this, uh, the trilogy of this, of this incredible masterpiece from Coppola. I think that's all amazing. And what's so funny is there's so many ways that we can split all these hairs. You know what I mean? Is that because I, 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 I agree with you and I, I part of it, I would frame slightly differently, which mm. is that I think he wants love and connection. I don't think he knows how to do it. Like, I think he wants it, it on his terms. Though. Literally, I oh, was sorry. about to say that. Sorry. No, no, no. Don't be sorry, because <laughs> I was going to point out again. I think we talked about it a long time ago, but the Citizen Kane uh, connection. Yes. Is, I want love love on my terms. Mm-hmm. Is that's what Michael wants? Is that and I don't think it's not that he for me, obviously, this is all interpretation, but it's not that he doesn't love his father. It's that he has a love-hate relationship with his family. Is that he doesn't he hates the Italian stereotypical mob. All the way that he feels like the world looks at his family, he hates. Yeah, yeah. And so he can never reconcile like what feelings of love he might have with him wanting to control things. He wants love on his terms. Right. He cares about what the world, just like Charles Foster Kane, right. he cares about what the world, you know, my love isn't enough for you. You want the whole world to love you. He wants the senator to love him, yeah. but he has no way of, and the senator representing white power structures. Right. But he has no way of getting the senator's love other than to threaten him, which makes it false. To trick him. Yeah. To, to, thing, yeah. yeah. It's like he wants Connie to obey what he wants. He doesn't show love to her. Right. He says, look, if you want my support, you must conform to these things that don't embarrass me. He's so fragile in this weird way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and he's so rigid in his thinking. Love can only be under my terms. Right. Therefore, I won't accept it unless I can conform it to what I want it to be, at which point it's devoid of love. That's why these three shots, as you say, are so incredible, because Vito together with his son, Michael, mm-hmm. as close as they can be, and then Michael alone after the family has left when he enlisted in the military and now Michael entirely alone, his father is dead. Sonny is dead. He's destroyed his relationship with Tom. He's brought Connie back, but in a way that she totally dominated and he's murdered his own brother. He is as as alone as anyone could possibly be at this moment. Just like Charles Foster Kane is at the end. Just like Charles Foster Kane. You cannot have love on your own terms. They are not the only terms anyone ever knows. Uh, yep. Only only the people who are shut off and fear love want love on their own terms. Well, I think it's a mis- an entire misinterpretation of what love is. Yeah, right. Love is caring about another human. Yeah. And in caring about another human, you have to accept their humanity yep. and their personality and their flaws and their needs and their foibles. You got to love all of that. Mm-hmm. Love is not forcing a person to conform to your will. Right. That's not love. Yeah. And as we talk about this, Steve, I go back to the slap of K. It is Michael slapping the white power structure. The white power structure says to him, I will bring another one of your things into this world. And the thing he most wants is acceptance 
by the white power structure and to see K, who he sees as lesser than him. Let's not deny that. He sees K as lesser than because he controls her, doesn't let her leave the house, all those things. To have her even say, I wouldn't bring another one of your things in this world. The thing he has wanted the most, which is to be accepted by the white power structure and to not be seen as a mob family or an Italian family or a, or a mafia family, even she rejects that. And in that moment, he is lashing out. Yes, on the, micro, on the smaller level, he's lashing out the fact that he is that she has aborted his child, but also she is rejecting him. Oh, yeah. The white power structure is rejecting him. And he can't do to her what he did to the senator. He can't do to her what he's done to other people to try to get them to to bow down to uh, their will. And Kate never does, to her credit. Even yeah. when Michael shuts the door on him, Kate doesn't go, okay, I'll change. I'll do whatever you want. No. Kate understands this situation. She will not give in again to Michael. You know. Well, and let's take this analysis one step for- further. Sure, sure. Is that so I said that I think that Michael wants love with his family, but he's embarrassed and hates the image of his family. Mm-hmm. Well, he wants the love of the white power structure. Yes. But that doesn't mean he doesn't hate the white power structure. Good point. Yes. You know, he hates the senator. He hates all the people that have made fun of him. He hates the Senate Senate committee that has besmirched his good name. He hates the image of himself as a mobster and what all these other people think of him. He wants to dominate the white power structure as well. He doesn't just want acceptance by that structure. He wants Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone. And the word that never gets said exactly in this film, President Corleone. Yeah, yeah. That's what he wants. And even then. He'd be unhappy. We saw what a paranoid president does in Nixon. You know, yeah. that's also a part of this, too, the paranoia that leads to, you know, what, what it can lead to, which is you being alone and losing everything that really matters, you know. So, yeah. so, so this was filmed between October of 73 and June of 74. They go into post-productions and basically throughout the entire process, everyone is saying this doesn't compare to Godfather 1. <laughs> and, and, and part of it is, as I've said many times, when you're in the middle of editing a film, yeah, it doesn't work. It's, it's really like, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> Coppola was embarrassed. He felt that he had made a horrible, horrible mistake. Wow. The first screenings didn't get a good reaction. And this is where I think I mentioned before, there used to be like 20 times where they went back and forth in time and they reduced it down to 12 Mm -hmm. in five days because they were coming right up on the release and they did a complete re-edit of the film in five days before the release. Wow. Which is crazy. Um, (laughs) Coppola said, this is just classic Francis Ford Coppola. He said, if I only had two more weeks to cut, it would have been a great movie. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as a director, whether play or movie, that's how you feel always. Oh, if I could, if we just two more weeks of rehearsal, you know, I, I literally, there are, there are two choices in the, two things in the assistance (laughs) that I, every time my brain goes to them, I'm sick to my stomach and embarrassed. (laughs) And like, and I've just tried to like, go, don't just never think about it. Just don't think about it. You can't change it. You fucked up. (laughs) Like that's it. It is what it is, but no, I'll never, never forget like those, those things that could have been better. Uh, It's released on December 20th, 1974. It makes $88 million, but it has mixed reviews (laughs) when it first comes out. And then slowly but surely, the acclaim starts to grow. Yeah. And which this totally makes sense to me because Godfather is just, you know, knocked, knocked out of the park. Right. 
this movie takes some reckoning with. I think it is like, you know, it's more like an inside the park home run, which is much harder to do. Mm. It's not as spectacular. I don't even know how that's not even the right word. It's just that like you walk out of Godfather and go, wow, that was great. You walk out of this and go, fuck, I'm well, fuck Mm -hmm. Jesus. It takes time to reckon with this movie. Um, it was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. It won for Best Picture. It won for Director. It won for Supporting Actor for De Niro. Mm. Uh, he beat both Strasberg and Michael Vigazzo, who were both also nominated for Supporting, uh, which is kind of amazing. It won for Adapted Screenplay, for Art Direction, and for Music. Pacino lost to Art Carney from Harry and Tonto. Ridiculous. Yeah. No offense it, to Art Carney and Harry and Tonto. I love Art Carney. Yeah. I, I've seen Harry and Tonto. I don't have a very strong memory of it. I'm, I'm sure he's really good in it. Yeah. Um, the white power starts are coming at him again. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> That's a weird one. I mean, because Al Pacino's performance in this movie is for the ages. Yeah. Um, Tally Shire lost to Ingrid Bergman, who won for Murder on the Orient Express, mm. which, I, again, I don't really remember her performance. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't even nominated for cinematography. It's crazy. Yeah. It uh, lost costumes to The Great Gatsby. It wasn't nominated for editing, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Diane Keaton wasn't nominated, which I find crazy. That is all That is all the information I have on The Godfather 2. <laughs> we've, we've reached the end of my notes. And so I think, I can't believe I'm saying this, John, but I think... <laughs> We've reached the time for our final thoughts. Yeah. I feel like we've kind of given a bunch of them, but what, yeah. what are your final thoughts on Godfather 2? Uh, it is still and will always be, in my opinion, um, in the top three to five films ever in my lifetime. It never gets old uh, watching it. I put it in the Citizen Kane pile that I could watch it at any moment, uh, at any time in my life and take so many different lessons from it than I did in the past. And I think it's a very powerful film that if you let the messages wash over you, if you grasp the messages of what the film is saying, um, it will resonate within you deeply for a long time. And every time you see it, it'll make you remember those feelings that you had when you discovered something about it, when it hit you, what the film was really all about. And it features some of the most incredible performances you're going to see of a lot of these actors um, who are entering their young prime in uh, Duvall and Pacino and De Niro and Talia Shire, John Cazale, who we would lose just shortly after this film came out. Um, so much of it here. Plus, you're seeing a master at work, Francis Ford Coppola. This 70s period is the master at work. And this is a lesson for anyone who's a filmmaker wants to become a filmmaker. You don't have to make Godfather part two, but you have to understand the greatness of Godfather part two that could help you become an even better filmmaker. You know, some of these films, Steve's are some of these films, Steve are film classes within themselves. And certainly throughout this entire film, it is that. And then some, Um, and you know, everything I just said is cool, but I could never do the film justice with just words just words it's the emotions it's the feelings it's the um awe that it inspires in me um and it's the uh the way it kind of devastates me by the time the film is over and that's why i put it over godfather i think i can revere godfather godfather 2 gets into my soul 
and messes me up from the inside out. It gives me a lot to think about. So I will divide my final thoughts into two parts. Hmm. The first, just to talk about the filmmaking and this as a work of art. And the second sort of more philosophically what I feel like it's making me think of or what its lessons are. I'll, hmm. uh, so I think that saying this is a masterpiece is obviously redundant. We've said it over and over again. Yes. But I can't think of another film except maybe Apocalypse Now where there is such a combination of fantastic storytelling on every craftsmanship level of filmmaking and poetry mm. is that there is the choice to go back in time at the end, the intercutting between these two vibes. It's yeah. creating um, emotions and juxtapositions that create thoughts that are beyond the story, you know, and it's why telling this whole story linear in a linear fashion doesn't have nearly the same power. There's something about going back and forth. There's yeah. something about the movements through time. And there's something about, this is a much more ambiguous film than Godfather one. There's very little ambiguity in Godfather one. I know what's going on. And yeah. here it's like, well, I don't know exactly what Michael thought of Frankie five angels. I don't know exactly what Hyman Roth's intention was. I don't know if, the Cuban government hadn't fallen, what Michael would have done with the $2 million. I don't know what Fredo did. I don't know how he betrayed him. I don't know when he betrayed him. I don't know what Johnny Ola's plans or Hyman Roth's plans with Michael exactly were. I don't know what Tom really feels. I don't know if Michael, when he says he loves Tom, is telling the truth. Yeah. I, there's so much in this film that is ambiguous. And I think that's what kind of brings it into this more for as gritty and violent and you know realistic this film is in many ways it's also in this sort of poetic space in this yeah. sort of abstract space so i like that so just the filmmaking to conceive all of this and i think there i think making this kind of film just like making citizen kane yeah. requires a certain kind of young arrogance that mm. neither of these guys are going to have that's great. going later in their life they just man i mean Francis Ford Coppola had balls. I mean, you just listen to what he did in God, all the fights he had. And he just went because this is what I believe. This is what's going to make a good movie. And because of that, he could make all these choices that are really strange yeah. and powerful because he had the arrogance of youth to go, yeah. I am right. This is what I want to do. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think so. That's remarkable. Philosophically, what this movie kept making me think about. And I tried to figure out. What, what is it that I keep coming back to? What I finally came back to is the platonic ideal. The platonic ideal is a philosophical construct of that in that for each object in the world, there is an ideal version of it. So there is an ideal chair, the perfect chair. There is an ideal sandwich. There is an ideal life. There's all, and that we as humans are, can never achieve the ideal, but we're always striving for the ideal. Mm -hmm. I think this exposes the fallacy of that way of thinking. Michael is constantly aspiring to an ideal, some idealized version of his life yeah. that he can't quite achieve. And he's trying to force every aspect of his life to adhere to that, to conform within some ideal vision. And that ideal vision isn't actually even created by what he wants. I don't think Michael knows what he wants. I don't think Michael knows what makes him happy with the exception of Apollonia. That's mm -hmm. the only thing where he goes, I want that. 
And then he has it and it makes him happy. Other than that, I don't think Michael knows what he wants. What he wants is that he wants the outside world to perceive him and his family as the platonic ideal. He's created an ideal image and he wants other people to see him that way. He doesn't care if they actually are that way. And so he is trying to force his family to be something that it's not. He never considers what is on the inside of his family. He never considers their happiness, their contentment. He doesn't see them as individuals who have their own needs. He sees them as an image that will be presented out into the world. And and, and here's the weird example I thought of. Fredo wears some ugly clothes. Mm. He has that one jacket that is just the tackiest thing you could possibly imagine. <laughs> I am certain that Michael, who, by the way, dresses really well, always with the silk sort of oh, yeah. scarf and I mean, he's beautifully tailored clothes. I bet Michael hates Fredo's ugly jacket and is embarrassed by it. Oh, yeah. Just like he hates Fredo's wife, drunken wife, and is embarrassed by her. Mm-hmm. Fredo might love that jacket. That might be Fredo's favorite jacket. And so why would you force them? Even, you know, it's like if you, you know, love a certain kind of food or love a certain kind of show, but that's great. You love it. Even if I don't like the thing that you love, but right. that's not how Michael thinks. He doesn't say what is command. Connie seems really unhappy. Why she's running out around with these guys. She's drinking. She's doing all these things. I'm worried about Connie. What does Connie need? Right. No, that's not what he's thinking. He wants her to conform. What does Tom need? No, Tom must conform. And and Michael, and this is the thing, this is where I go back to is like the ideas of you have crossed me, I must destroy you. All of these things are rigid ways of thinking. Instead of thinking, you know, you know, look at our son Anthony. Yeah. What does he need? Look what's happening to him and him look, not wanting to see yeah. him. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, I asked this question way in the beginning. Which movie did you like more? You said Godfather 2. And I think you've answered it. You still like Godfather 2. Mm-hmm. Has through this process, has your opinions changed or evolved as we spent so long talking about this stuff? Uh, the, the only thing that's changed or evolved is my deeper appreciation of both of these films. You know, sometimes I can forget how great Godfather, the first Godfather movie is because it's just so accepted as great. But when you revisit it and spend time with it and live in that world, you reappreciate how great that film is. And for Godfather 2, it was just deepening my love of it, deepening how much I revere it and uh, you know, getting to analyze it with you and break it down. You know, we watch films, Steve, and we have our own personal conversations with our minds as we watch films. Having them with you, it's fun to put bring those out and hear other approaches and other points of views and so if anything this journey has given me a deeper appreciation as i just stated of both of these films because i feel like we ripped the skin off of them and got all the way down to the the bones of these of both of these films and then put the meat back on and built it back out which is so great to do when you're doing uh, when you're revisiting these great classic films it's so funny i think i feel the same way and i think that I have gone so much deeper into these films than I ever imagined and learned so much and thought so much and analyzed so much. And in the end, I feel almost exactly the way I felt when we started in terms of how I feel about the movies. I'd rather watch Godfather because I can like it more. And I have a very difficult time with Godfather 2. And I think it's a masterpiece. That's that's sort of that's where I started. And in a weird way. That's where I've ended up. But of course, we would love to hear what you think about Godfather 1 and 2. 
particularly if this is your first time viewing it, but also if this is your 50th time viewing it. You can visit us on our Facebook page, do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. On Spotify, we're starting, if you listen to the show there, we're able to put up polls. So we're going to put up little questions uh, to get your responses, which is kind of fun. On iTunes, please, please, please leave your reviews. We've gotten a few great ones lately. Thank you very much for reviewing the show. You can buy or stream Godfather 2 along with every other film we've ever done on cinephiles.net, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S.net. You can support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. We love our patrons. You guys are awesome, and you're really what helps keep the show going. You can follow the show at cine underscore files on Twitter, at the cinephiles podcast on Instagram. Me, you can follow at SR Morris on Twitter and SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how about you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram as well. And please come over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says so much great content uh, going there are WandaVision reviews impolite truths, our own or my own uh, film reviews that are going to start popping up more and more through March uh, and uh, sports talk, all kinds of stuff happens on that channel. Anything you could possibly be interested in. It is there on that channel for you to enjoy. So please come on board and you know steve's joined me a few times for some reviews and some political talk on impolite Truth. so come and uh, hang out with all the content we do there uh it is an absolutely incredible channel and i'm going to highlight again those wandavision reviews are fantastic thank you it is the go-to source for wandavision information and i think that is it for this week the next thing we're going to be doing is our first cinephiles medium which is going to be a live stream on youtube to discuss godfather 3 and all of the Godfather films with all of you, because we would love to hear your opinions. Coming on YouTube, it's a chance for you to ask questions, for you to even come on camera and have a conversation with us about these incredible films. So that is it for this week. Next time we see you, we might actually see you on YouTube for our live stream to discuss Godfather 3 and the Godfather films. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.